and things that don't really matter in light of eternity. It's easy to get caught up in a lot of things that, that seem like they're good at the time, like work, like, like hobbies, like so many other things, Lord, but in the end, they cause us to sacrifice the things that matter most, things like family and things like you. Lord, this morning as we're gathered here, I pray that you will open our eyes in fresh ways to how we can prioritize you, how we can identify those areas in our lives that they really don't need as much priority as you do. Um, God, I thank you for your grace. Thank you that um, even in those times where we do prioritize the incorrect things, you give us grace through Christ. And I pray that as we open your word this morning, as we talk about how we make you the number one priority in our lives, that you will be our teacher. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to make a statement in just a moment that if you take it out of context, maybe grounds for firing me as your pastor. Now, I say if you take it out of context, I want you to keep listening after I make this statement. But as I said, if, if you just listen to this one statement and stop listening to everything I say after that, you're not going to quite understand what I'm saying. But here's that statement. I am not a fan of Jesus Christ. I'm not a fan of Jesus Christ. Let me explain what I mean when I make this statement. When you look at the dictionary, the most basic definition of a fan is someone who enthusiastically admires someone or something. They're an enthusiastic admirer. They enjoy their association with that thing. They may derive some benefits from that. They may even be living vicariously through that thing or that person. But they're, at the bottom line, they're an enthusiastic admirer of it. And their commitment to that thing or that person is somewhat limited in some way. Uh, this, this idea of not being a fan of Jesus is actually based on a book that came out just a couple months ago by a man named Kyle Eidelman, where he challenges people... Uh, challenges Christians specifically to this idea that we are not called simply to be fans of Jesus. We're not called simply to be enthusiastic admirers of Jesus who aren't fully committed to following him, who aren't willing to count the cost, aren't willing to make sacrifices that he calls us to, to be his committed followers. In this book um, called Not a Fan, uh, Kyle Eilman offers a couple different pictures of what fans oftentimes are, and he compares them with the way we are called to be as Christians. First of all, he talks about a sports fan. You think about a person who enjoys uh, sports. They may go to a lot of games. They may even go with, without much on their, top, uh, on their top half of their body, and they have body paint on, uh, on their bodies or on their face or something like that in support of their team. Or they may uh, watch on TV, get all excited. They may have sports memorabilia with the logo of the team on their, on their shirts or on their cars or something like that. They may get all excited about that sports team. They may, may even know the history of that team and the, and the stats of a lot of the team's players. But at the end of the day, many times they are simply enthusiastic admirers of that sports team and of the players in that team. They may know a lot about the players, a lot about the team, but for most fans, give, them a, give that team a few bad seasons. Odds are good the enthusiasm that the fan has for that team is going to begin to fade. They're simply enthusiastic admirers of that team. Or the author of this book also gives a picture of a woman who is very enthusiastically admiring some new actress in Hollywood. 
that this woman is, is following this actress on the, on the uh, celebrity news shows on TV. She's reading People magazine a lot, trying to learn as much about this actress as possible, sort of living vicariously through this actress. She may even know where this actress was born, where she went to high school, who her first boyfriend was, uh, what the original color of her hair was. But the reality is, she doesn't really know this actress personally at all. There's not a personal commitment there, even though she enjoys learning about this actress. She's an enthusiastic admirer, a fan. But there's not a deeper level commitment or loyalty to this person. And the author of this book says it's the same with Jesus. That we have many people in America and around the world who are fans of Jesus, who are enthusiastic admirers of him, who enjoy going to church and doing churchy things. They may be able to talk a good game. They may enjoy the benefits that come from being associated with Christ. But at the end of the day, they aren't a whole lot more than enthusiastic admirers. They approach Jesus in a similar way as they approach a sports game, where they enjoy the sports game while they're there, but then after they're done with the game, they go on and, and live the rest of life. It can be the same way with Jesus. So it's in that context that I say that I'm not a fan of Jesus Christ. At least that's my goal. My goal is not simply to be a fan, but to be a wholehearted follower of him, of, of heeding the call to take up my cross and follow him daily. That's what Jesus calls us to, not just to be fans, but to be fully committed followers of Christ. This is the topic that we are talking about today uh, as we are continuing our series called The Journey with Jesus. In this series, we're going through the Gospel of Luke. It's a biography of Jesus written 2,000 years ago by a doctor named Luke. We've been going through it for a while now. Uh, today we're in Luke chapter 18. And actually, even though we still have a number of chapters left, we're nearing the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. In fact, next week we're going to begin uh, Jesus' final week. It's going to be what's called his triumphal entry, where he enters Jerusalem for the final time before his crucifixion. But today we come to a passage in Luke 18. We're going to look at another passage in Luke 19 that talks about the idea of treasuring Christ, of, of being fully committed to him, not just as a fan, but as a fully committed follower of his. The, the main thing that we're going to be looking at this morning is this idea that we can't treasure Christ while worshiping idols. We can't treasure Christ while worshiping idols. Now, you may be thinking, idols, what, what do those have to do with us today here in America? Aren't idols those little statues made of, of wood or stone or metal that people in other countries bow down and worship? Or, or maybe, um, maybe uh, a long time ago, but not us here in America. We have to recognize that we in America have idols just as much as anyone in any time anywhere else when they bow down to wood or to stone or to, or to metal. Our idols just take a slightly different form. There are things like money, that we easily worship money. And I mean, you may not think you're, okay, I'm not bowing down to that $100 bill on my kitchen counter. But that we place a sense of security and a sense of worth in that money that really should be reserved for God. Same thing uh, with maybe a lake home that we, that we put, that we worship that more than we worship God. It becomes an idol to us. It takes all of our time, our attention, our imagination. Sometimes it's beauty, that, that the pursuit of beauty and looking good in other people's eyes, whether it's through our physical beauty or through trying to be popular or, think, or have a, an attractive personality, 
that can become an idol because we worship that. Or cars, or iPads, or other technology, or even relationships can become idols that we put on a higher pedestal in our life, a higher priority than God. I mean, you see this, I even think about um, back before I was married, it was easy, easy to idolize this idea of having a spouse. When you see something that you don't have, but you want it, it's easy to idolize that thing. So there are many things that we idolize. And, and I think this, a picture or a description of an idol that applies to us today comes from a, a pastor in New York City named Tim Keller. He says that an idol is something that we look to for things that only God can give. An idol is something that we look to for things that only God can give. These things would include things like identity and security and significance in life. That it's easy to look to those other things like our possessions, our money, our social status. Look to those things for our identity and security and purpose rather than looking to God. But in order to really treasure Christ, in order to move from being a fan of Jesus to really being a committed follower of him, we have to be willing to release those idols to God. And those, that's the first thing that we're going to look at in this passage. We're going to look at uh, these passages today in three different parts. And the first part is found in Luke 18, verses 18 through 25. And in this passage, we see that Christ calls us to release our idols. Follow along with me, either on the screen or in the Bible, as I begin reading Luke 18, beginning in verse 18, where Luke writes, A certain ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not uh, give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. Then when Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So we, we see that this is a passage about money. At least on the surface, it's about money. And for this reason, it makes it very relevant to our lives today here in modern-day America. Because so I would say that our culture, well, it's without doubt that our culture is the most affluent culture in world history in terms of money and possessions. And it's very easy, growing up in this American culture, even if you've just been exposed to a little bit, to begin to idolize money and possessions. But many of the times we're even uh, blind to this reality. We're blind to our own affluence as Americans. A few weeks ago we had our Adoption 101 workshop here where it was a way for people to learn more about adoption if they're interested in the adoption process. We had a panel of adoption experts and one of these men shared a story about when he went overseas to a third world country. And one of the things you have to understand about third world countries, or most of the rest of the world actually, is that they enjoy watching American TV. Even when my wife and I went over to Ethiopia to bring home our son, 
the nannies in the orphanage were pointing the children to watch American TV, these, these soap operas, saying, that's America, that's America. It's what it's like in other parts of the world. And people, when they watch these American TV shows, they think that's what America is like. And so this man on this panel at the Adoption 101 workshop talked about going to this third world country. And he's talking with a bunch of kids. He wanted to set straight right away that what you see on TV is not always an accurate depiction of what life in America is like. So he's going to start to explain this a little bit when one of the children raised his hand. And he asked this question. Is it true that Americans really have houses for their cars? Is it true that you Americans really have houses for your cars? Garages. To most of the rest of the world, this idea of having houses for our cars in the form of garages is completely strange. I mean, it's really a sign of our affluence that we afford and value houses for our cars, and we even take it for granted. Sometimes we even complain that we only have one or two houses for our cars rather than three or four. It's just a sign of our affluence. And so when we come to this passage that talks about affluence and talks about our view of money, we as Americans should sit up and take notice and recognize that even though this is a conversation that took place 2,000 years ago, it is incredibly relevant for our lives today in America. We see that there was a certain ruler who came up to Jesus. We know from this passage that he's a very wealthy ruler. We know from Matthew, who also wrote a biography of Jesus, uh, telling the same story of the same conversation. We know that he was a young ruler. Young in that culture would probably mean that he was somewhere in the age of 25 to 35. So he was a rich young ruler. Uh, odds are good he was a ruler in, in some social area of society, maybe political area, civic area of society, probably not a religious ruler for a couple of reasons. One is that religious rulers were oftentimes a little bit older than this man probably was. But the bigger reason is that throughout this biography that Dr. Luke is writing about Jesus, he makes a special point to point out every time Jesus is interacting with a religious, uh, religious leader, a religious man. And here Luke doesn't point that out. He simply says a certain ruler. So it's probably a political ruler who's young, somewhere between the age of 25 and 35, who has a lot of things going for him in life. He comes up to Jesus. He, he probably, I mean, knowing that he's a leader, knowing that he has money, he, he definitely has things together, but he probably at this point is thinking, you know what, I need to get my spiritual life in order. I need to make sure that when I die, whatever that happens, that I have eternal life, that I'm right with God. He sees Jesus coming into town, this, this traveling preacher who's been attracting quite a crowd. Uh, he's, he's renowned for his wisdom, for his miracles. He thinks, hey, I'm going to go up to this guy and ask him my question so he can help me get my spiritual life in order as well. So he walks up to him, maybe, maybe puts his arm around him. If this was taking place today, he probably would, maybe not in that culture. But he says, good teacher. Kind of buttering, up, buttering Jesus up a little bit here. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, what he's looking for is really a performance plan in order to get into God's good graces here. He asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's looking for something to do. In the rest of his, in the other spheres of his life, in finances and his leadership, he has things going well for him. He's been doing good things. And here he thinks that by doing good things, he's going to be able to inherit eternal life. But Jesus actually puts him on the defensive very quickly and doesn't directly respond to the question right away. Instead, he says, why do you call me good? 
No one's good except for God. I think there are a couple of reasons why Jesus responds in this way. One is that he wants, um, he wants to call this guy on his flattery. He's, Jesus is basically rebuking him, saying, you know what, I see you're trying to flatter me, you're trying to butter me up. Don't try to do that. But secondly, and more importantly, Jesus is saying, you know what, you need to recognize that trying to be good is not something that's going to get you into God's good graces. Trying to be good is never going to be good enough. No one is good. No one is perfect. No one is good enough to earn God's favor because only God is ultimately good. We inherently are not that good. We can't, there's no performance plan to get us right in God's sight. But Jesus does point to a handful of the Ten Commandments. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. It's interesting that these, ten, these parts of the Ten Commandments that Jesus points to are the parts that relate directly to other people. Jesus doesn't point out the commandments that relate to worshiping God. Instead, points out to the, points to the commandments that relate to how you relate to others. And I think he does this partly because they're very concrete and measurable in terms of how do you relate to the others around you. And the way that you relate to others says a lot about how you view God. We see this throughout Scripture. For instance, in 1 John chapter 4, John writes that whoever does not love his brother does not know God because God is love. That the way we treat others around us says a lot about how we view God. Well, the rich young ruler doesn't miss a beat here. He's probably feeling pretty good about himself. He says, you know what? I kept all these commandments since I was a little boy. He's probably giving himself a little pat on the back thinking, okay, I'm doing pretty well here. And then Jesus changes, Jesus changes his angle a little bit. He said to him, One thing you still lack, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. This, what Jesus is doing here is really revealing an idol in this rich man's life. This is a, a statement that Jesus gives to this rich young ruler of sell everything and give to the poor, then come follow me. It's really confused a lot of Christians through the years. There have been a lot of well-intentioned Christians who take this and apply it universally, saying that if we really want to follow Christ, we need to give up everything we have. We need to sell it all, and they equate uh, poverty with godliness. But in reality, that's not what Jesus is saying here specifically. He's not saying that everyone should sell everything in order to be a genuine follower of Christ. Instead, he's pointing out one of the things in this rich young man's life that is holding him back from following God. He's pointing out an idol that is very specific to this man, although anyone can, can succumb to this sort of idol of worshiping money. But Jesus wants to test his heart. He wants to see, will this man really follow God rather than giving his primary allegiance to his money? So he says, he puts him to the test. He says, Sell everything, then come follow me. If he does that, it will show that this man values God over his money. But we see that this man, when push comes to shove, is not willing to release the idol of his money and his possessions. We see that when the rich man heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. This means he walked away. Jesus gave him an offer to come follow him. What an incredible offer! to follow Christ and have eternal life. But the man walks away. 
because his allegiance, his primary allegiance, is to his wealth and not to God. You know that when we face decisions in our lives, this is a decision we oftentimes face, and our decisions show what we really value in life. Now, we may not have a decision that's quite as big in and of itself as this particular decision here, but our decisions still show what we really value. For instance, when we have an opportunity for promotion at work, uh, that if we take the promotion, it's going to mean a greater salary, it's going to mean we're moving up the corporate ladder, but it's also going to mean, perhaps, that we may have to travel more, that we're going to have to be away from our family a little bit more. It's a decision to make. Do you move up the corporate ladder and get more money? Or do you spend more time with your family? It's a decision that you have to make. There's not necessarily a right or wrong answer uh, without considering all the different factors. Yet at the same time, the decision you make once you weigh the factors does show what your values are. You have other things that are even more explicit than that that show values. For instance, in, in the way that we spend our free time, are we going to invest all of our free time in ourselves and what we want to do? Or are we going to spend it serving others? Are we going to serve it growing closer to God? The way we spend our free time shows our values. You look at things that can be very addictive, things like pornography or alcohol. When we make decisions of whether or not we're going to pursue that or not, it shows what our values are, whether we value our own um, pleasure, whether, whether we're going to gratify ourselves, or whether we're going to do what honors God and honors those around us. When we make a decision of whether or not we're going to get up half an hour earlier to spend time with God in Scripture and prayer, or whether we're going to sleep in the extra half hour, again, it shows priorities. It shows what we truly value. So we face these decisions on a small scale, even on a daily basis, that show what our values are. But this man, this rich young man, faced this decision on a big, very big scale. He had to make that decision between God or between his idol. He chose the idol of money. Now, I want to share with you this morning a few ways that we can identify idols in our own lives. Because, you know, it can be challenging sometimes to figure out what really is an idol in my life. What are those things that are holding me back from wholeheartedly following God? I want to share with you four of them that come from a book called Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller. The first one, he asks, what captures your imagination? What do you think of when your mind goes blank? What do you daydream about? When you think about your preferred future, what, what is in that future? Is it some really nice home? Is it some person that you're with? Is it a dream career that you have? If you find yourself imagining something over and over and over as you think about your future, as you daydream, odds are good that could be an idol for you that God wants you to release. A second thing is how do you spend your money? The direction that our money oftentimes goes indicates where our hearts really are. I think about my life. Uh, this, this idea of where I spend my money has been a good indication through the years of where my idols are, those things that hold me back from God. I think of when I was a high schooler, there was a pair of Air Jordan shoes that I really thought I needed. I, I didn't go to the store thinking I needed them, but then when I saw them up there on the shelf, I thought, I need those shoes. They were $130 back in the mid-90s. That's a lot of money for shoes, isn't it? I see some parents kind of looking at their children thinking, uh, no, not for you. 
But I thought I needed those. And so I saved up the money to get these Air Jordan shoes because I thought they would make me cool. And some of my friends did think they were pretty cool. But I was worshiping those shoes, in essence. A few years later, radio control car. I, I, spent, I saved up hundreds and hundreds of dollars to get this really fancy radio control car. I know some of you, this doesn't make much sense. But to me, it meant a lot. My next idol was my truck. Still own the truck today, but I spent so much money on that truck because I literally wanted it to be my identity. I wanted it to be associated with me. Again, to some of you, this doesn't make sense. But you might have other things in your life that you see, I spent a lot of money in those areas. And that shows where our heart really is. A third thing, which is adapted from Tim Keller's book, asks, what do you look to on a regular basis for comfort and joy and purpose? We could add to that, what do you look to for security? Tim Keller calls this, what is your real daily functional salvation? What are you looking to to give you that sense of hope? What are you looking to when times are hard to get you through? If you're looking to something else consistently more than God, odds are good that thing could be an idol. And finally, Tim Keller asked the question, what is the cause of your most uncontrollable emotions? When you have those emotions, whether it's sadness or, or fear or anger, when you see these things welling up over and over and over, can you trace those emotions back to some cause that's causing you to have that anger or that fear or that sadness over and over and over the source of those uncontrollable emotions may very well be an idol in our lives. It's very easy to have those idols. I mean, for me, one of the things, I, I no longer have really the truck or a lot of material possessions as my idols, but I find honestly that my ministry can be an idol. That may sound really strange, but it is, because I, I, it's easy for me to wrap my sense of identity and significance in life up in my ministry. And the success of my ministry, I easily compare myself with other pastors looking at the skills that they have or looking at the churches they pastor and think, I wish I was more like that. That's an idol. I'm looking to other places at times for that sense of security, that sense of purpose, that sense of identity when I really should just be looking at God. Odds are good we all have idols in our life of some sort or another. The issue is whether we can identify them and then whether we can release them to God. So that's the first thing here. And, and we're going to look briefly at a couple other topics here with these idols. The second topic is that when we release those idols to God, we gain Christ. Look with me back to this passage beginning in Luke 18, verse 26, where it says that those who heard what Jesus said asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, we have, we have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in, in, in the age to come, eternal life. So the people who are hearing what just took place with this rich young man, and now Jesus says it's really hard for the rich to enter heaven they're all confused because in that culture, material abundance was equated with God's blessing. But Jesus is saying, no, the, the money and the possessions, if your heart is set on those things, can really hold you back from God. So they're all confused. But Jesus says, 
that what is impossible with men is possible with God. Jesus here is pointing to God's work in us. That if God's at work in us, he can overcome even the, the most difficult of obstacles in our lives that keep us back from him. If it's worshiping other idols, if it's hardness of heart, God can break through those things. We can't do it ourselves, but God can. I think what this points to when we're dealing with those idols in our life, when we're trying to become more than just a fan of Jesus and become a committed follower of him, is that we need to be praying, asking God to work in our lives, to loosen our grip on those idols, to cause us to treasure Christ more and those other things less. So we need to be praying that God will be at work in us. And we see here that if we are willing to surrender these other things to God, that he will replace them with eternal treasure. Even though we may have to give up uh, relationships in this life, even though we may have to give up lucrative jobs, even though we may have to, to release some of the, the houses or the cars or the other things that we hold as idols, God will replace those things with something much better. He says, ultimately, he will give us eternal life. Eternal life in Scripture is equated with knowing Christ. John 17, 3 says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know God, the only true Father, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Eternal life is essentially knowing Christ. And so when we begin to let go of those idols, when we surrender those things and say, God, not my will, but yours be done, we'll begin to experience more of the blessings that God has for us. And those idols will no longer control us as much. I think of the times in my life when I began to release control of those idols a little bit more. My truck, a very practical way to do that was to allow others to drive it at times when they needed to use it to haul stuff. You may not believe this, but when my truck was pretty new, for instance, my dad wanted to get some railroad ties to put around our house. I made him put a tarp down in the bed of the truck so that the bed of the pickup truck would not get scratched. That was how much I idolized and worshipped this truck. It was literally my idol. But then a few years later, as I grew as a Christian, I realized, you know what? I need to release that to God. One of the symbolic ways I did that was literally when people needed to use it, to give them the keys and let them use it. It meant a few more scratches got on the truck. It meant I wasn't always in absolute control of what was happening with that truck. But it's amazing how my perspective on that truck, that idol, changed over time because I was willing to release it. I think, too, about money, how money is one of those things that's very easy to hold on to. But when you become generous with your money, you begin to release, it's no longer as powerful in your life in terms of how you idolize it. Maybe you're a student and you, you really value that popularity that you get from people at school. Maybe a way for you to help release that idol of popularity and of others' opinions is for you to intentionally begin to reach out to people who may not be as popular. It may cause you to not be as popular either. But by reaching out to those people, you're honoring God, you're helping out others. It might help you to release that, that, that passion you have to be popular at all costs. Or maybe if, if you find that one of the idols in your life is beauty and looking good in other people's eyes. Maybe it will mean that you need to stop reading the magazines that glorify physical beauty. It may mean that there are certain TV shows that you don't need to watch anymore because they are causing you to idolize this beauty. There are changes that we have to make if we want to get rid of those idols in our life. The change that Jesus called this young man to was to give up his possessions. He was unwilling to. 
Now the question for us is, are we willing to release those idols to God so that we can become more than just a fan of Jesus and become a committed follower of his? Now finally in this passage, I want to look at a brief case study of a man who is willing to become more than a fan and instead become a committed follower of Christ. We see this in the first 10 verses of Luke 19 with a man who's named Zacchaeus. In Luke 19, verse 1, uh, it says that Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay in your house today. So he gladly came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. So we see here a man named Zacchaeus. When we see him at the beginning of the story, he's a very greedy man. That's what he's built his life on, his money. He's a, a tax collector. In that society, to be a tax collector uh, was to be greedy. That's the only reason that someone would want to become a tax collector. Tax collectors in that culture had the opportunity to not only collect the required taxes for the Roman Empire but to tack on as many surcharges and extra taxes that they wanted in order to line their own pockets. They were protected uh, by, the, by the Roman military to be able to do this, to collect as much money as they wanted. Zacchaeus was most likely a Jewish man. He would be despised for being a tax collector. So we have to ask, what would lead Zacchaeus to become a tax collector? And even a chief tax collector at that. At the top of the totem pole of tax collectors. The only answer is money, the greed, because tax collectors can make a lot of money. So we have Zacchaeus, a greedy man, and here comes Jesus in the town. And Zacchaeus wants to get a glimpse of Jesus, wants to see this man, but there's a problem. That Zacchaeus is very short, and he cannot see Jesus through the crowds. Now, odds are good it wouldn't have gone very well for him if he tried to push his way through the crowd to get to the front, because... No one would want to let a tax collector through. They're going to say, no, stay back there in the back. So Zacchaeus does something that would be very humbling in that culture. He finds a tree and climbs that tree so that he can see Jesus as Jesus comes through the streets. Jesus looks up and sees him. He says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house today for lunch. I want to be with you. Just think about how honoring that would be to Zacchaeus. People shun him through the years. And here Jesus comes over to his house. You look at Zacchaeus' response. He says, you know what, Jesus, I want to be more than just a fan of yours. I want to be a committed follower of yours. To show that, to show my allegiance, I want to give away half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anyone out of money through the years, I'm going to give them back four times what I've taken. Now, this even shows that Jesus doesn't require everyone to give away everything. Because Jesus is perfectly happy with Zacchaeus giving away half of it. And he still had plenty to live on, I'm sure. But it showed that Zacchaeus, a man for whom the wealth used to be an idol, 
was willing to release the idol of his money so that he could have Christ instead. We can't have both. We have to choose. But Zacchaeus, unlike the rich young ruler, chose Jesus. A far better choice. We see that the result of this is eternal life. Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. Not because of what Zacchaeus did, but because in his heart he treasured Jesus over the idol of money. Jesus closes out this passage saying, The Son of Man, which refers to himself, came to seek and to save what was lost. Many times when we hear this term, what is lost, we think of people who don't know Christ. But there's another way to look at that too. Those who are lost are people who are looking in the wrong place for life. They're looking to the cars, to the beauty, to the popularity, to the money for life. Jesus came to call people away from those things that can't give life and call them to treasure him instead because only he can give life. I want to close this morning with the passage out of Jeremiah uh, where, where God is talking to Israel. This happened hundreds of years before the time of Christ, but in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 13, or verse 13, God says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. You see that, that there, it's very easy to seek life in places that don't, that where life isn't. Broken cisterns that can't hold water. What Jesus is calling us to is to come back to God, to place our hope and our faith in him wholeheartedly, to release our idols and to treasure Christ. He calls us to not simply be a fan, an admirer who stands at a distance and enjoys Christ. But he calls us to be a wholehearted, commit, a committed follower of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord, we do give you thanks that you call us away from those things that don't bring life. It is so easy to get caught up in those good things. These aren't inherently bad things, Lord, that we so often get caught up in. But we thank you that you call us away from the good things to place our ultimate allegiance in what is best, which is Christ. Lord, I pray that you will work in each one of our lives to help us to surrender those idols to you and to follow you wholeheartedly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.